the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I am your Headmaster and host, Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you here every Saturday evening here on AM 1280, The Patriot. And I'm joined in studio, of course, once again by our wonderful producer of Education Nation and my co-host, Mark Durkin. Good evening again, Rebecca. Good evening. Wonderful to be together again. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm so excited about this show because we started a great conversation last week um, regarding the Blaine Amendments in a case in Montana. And we're going to continue that conversation today. And kudos today. to the parents in Montana that are just standing up and they're giving a voice to those that don't have a voice. Absolutely. And they're willing to take this all the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's not an easy step to take. Well, for more than, just to give a little background, for more than 150 years, the Blaine Amendments, which now exist in 37 states, have prohibited the use of government funding to benefit religious schools and other organizations. SCOTUS acknowledges the initial Blaine Amendment proposal was drafted to protect the Protestant monopoly over public schools, motivated by fear of the influence of new Catholic immigrants on the on the nation. And that's right, Rebecca. In today's America, we've seen a shift in the public schools from generic Protestant education to a secularized education model compatible with Common Core. Is it safe to say that much of the resistance to school choice with religious options is motivated by the same fear and control that somehow a religious-centered instruction is perceived to be a threat to the agendas of modern-day educational structures? Well, such government resistance to school choice in the state of Montana now has the attention of the U.S. Supreme Court. In fact, the Montana legislature's creation of a K-12 through scholarship program funded via private donations and tax credits is facing an obstacle from the state's revenue department, a rule that excludes the religious from the scholarship program. Parents are suing, and the unconstitutionality of the Blaine Amendments is once again under the microscope. Mm-hmm. Well, joining us in the studio again for the second week in a row to discuss this case in Montana is Attorney Anthony Sanders. Mr. Sanders is a senior attorney and the current director of the Center for Judicial Engagement at the Institute of Justice, and he educates the public about the proper role of judges in enforcing constitutional limits on the size and the scope of government. As a senior attorney, Anthony litigates cutting-edge constitutional cases protecting economic liberty, private property, freedom of speech, and other individual liberties in both federal and state courts across the country. That's right. And one area of Anthony's expertise is on using state constitutions to protect individual rights. He's litigated several cases in various state courts on state constitutional protections. 
He's also written several law review articles on state constitutional law. We're honored to have Anthony in studio, uh, who's had the privilege of being president present at the U.S. Supreme Court for oral arguments in Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. And he's here to discuss how this Montana case could be paramount in overturning more than 150 years of legalized bigotry against religious liberties that unbelievably still have a place in American law. Anthony, thanks for joining us again a second week in our studio on Education Nation. And thank you again for having me. Yeah. Well, Interesting topic. Yes, it is. And we're going to pick up from where we uh, were discussing last week. We had spent a considerable amount of time just talking about uh, who was suing who in this case and uh, why this case was brought in state court and not federal court. And and now we're getting ready to turn the page in terms of how this uh, case then got to the Supreme Court. I mean, how was how hard was it to get it there? Yeah, it is very difficult to get almost any case to the, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, there are about 10,000 petitions filed every year to try to get a case to the Supreme Court, and those are from state Supreme Courts and from federal courts of appeals. Only about 1% are -hmm. taken. Um, But we knew that we had a good shot in this case because this is a logical next case from the case we discussed last week, Trinity Mm -hmm. Lutheran, which is is about Missouri's Blaine Amendment. Uh, And then this takes the the question of whether these Blaine Amendments, which were rooted in anti-Catholic bigotry, whether they violate, in certain circumstances at least, the the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And so this is the case that takes that to school choice. Mm -hmm. Yes. Very interesting. And oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go right ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say that process took you. I think you mentioned last week. Um, it took what quite a while to even get to that place where you found out that it was going to be tried or yeah. taken. Yeah, it's been been. This case has been going on for about five years, and it was uh, it was June of of last year that went to the Supreme Court. I should say, you know, my organization has litigated this issue for a number of years, and Blaine amendments have been a, a, a big. Um, barrier, at least a potential barrier in many states to school choice. And we had the same issue in a different school choice program at the Supreme Court a couple of years ago from uh, Colorado, where the Hmm. Colorado Supreme Court had done a similar thing in a a different school choice program. I think we covered that. But that, yeah, that case was uh, was reversed and remanded by the, the Supreme Court after Trinity Lutheran. But unfortunately, after that, the, uh, the, the, Program was ended by the local school board, and so <laughs> Gosh, after all that work, never never became a, a U.S. Supreme Court opinion. Mm-hmm. But then this hopefully will be different this time. Mm-hmm. Well, when we speak of violations of the U.S. Constitution, I think it's important that we talk about a Supreme Court case in the 19th century. That at first look, you would think that this is what could be interjected by the Supreme Court to go ahead and simply overturn these Blend Amendments. And in fact, in 1803. The single most important decision in American constitutional law came in the Supreme Court case of Marbury versus Madison. Now, takes me back to my government and law class. Yes, it does. <laughs> high school. <laughs> in, in, in this case, it established the principle uh, of, and you'll go ahead and, and refute some of this, but it, it established the principle of judicial review in the United States, meaning that American courts have the power to strike down laws, statutes, and some government actions that violate the U.S. Constitution. The Blaine Amendments have been used to eliminate school choice programs, as we've been discussing, including religious options, 
And these amendments, they violate the First Amendment. So why hasn't the U.S. Supreme Court ever used the principles from Marbury versus Madison to put an end to the unconstitutional Blaine Amendments over the last 150 years? Well, that, that's a great question, Mark. And Marbury versus Madison is definitely fundamental in the idea of judicial review. There actually was this. Sometimes people say Marbury versus Madison was was made up or it was a, a, a judicial power grab in 1803 mm. by Justice mm. um, uh, Justice John Marshall. That That's actually not the case. Judicial review goes back even further than that in our early state constitutions. It was becoming a well-adopted idea at that time. And it's pretty obvious if you have a written constitution that's supposed to be the fundamental law, right. and then the legislature does th- something that goes against that law, right. of course the court should go to the higher law, right. not to the legislature, and find that, that the two conflict. So it's a fundamental principle of just having a, a separation of powers mm-hmm. and, and a constitutional government. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been many cases over the years where courts have found laws to be unconstitutional. Why hasn't this happened with a Blaine Amendment before? Well, it, it hasn't in, in um, you know, different, different degrees. I mean, of course, we have the Trinity Lutheran case, and that was about a, a program. Why it hasn't happened with school choice is mostly because it just— uh, in, in this country, to have a ruling by a court, you need to have something to challenge. And so if you don't have a school choice program, you're not going to have a, a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. A, and that's generally how, how it works. So it took it takes, you know, some sometimes kind of a quirk of procedure and politics and and what have you to have this kind of uh, this kind of ruling come before this kind of issue come before the U.S. Supreme Court. If if, say, the Montana Supreme Court had said, you know, this school choice program actually doesn't conflict with the, the Blaine Amendment, maybe the Blaine Amendment's rooted in anti-Catholic bigotry, maybe there's other reasons against it, but this case, this program's fine. Other other states have said that about other school choice programs and Blaine Amendments, mm-hmm. but it took, a, it took the combination of all that in this case to bring the issue to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Do you think it also has to do with the fact that it uses the term sectarian and people's understanding of what that means has changed so much that they don't even realize that it was a anti-Catholic bigoted type of an amendment and they're interpreting it more as a, uh, well, there's supposed to be this separation between church and state and sectarian is anything religious. And so is there almost no... Um, argument against it in many of the state legislatures because they don't even really necessarily know what it meant. Well, that has softened the the um, the bigotry behind yeah. the amendments. They definitely still have that history. Yes, but, I know. But yes, I, do but, people understand that? I don't yeah, think they and, do. And often that that's not true. And that's why it's it's of course interpreted today to mean religious, non-religious, which still mm-hmm. has. Has a lot of problems, right. constitutional problems, <laughs> right, right, right. But um, it it means that that it doesn't come to the fore. And in fact, our establishment clause argument in this case. So we've been talking more about the free exercise clause in our last mm-hmm, program. But mm-hmm. establishment clause argument is that it's rooted in this anti-Catholic bigotry. And so even though you know the people implementing the program today don't have anti-Catholic animus, sure. that infects the origin um, of the provision. Mm-hmm. That hasn't come up as much in this case because Montana actually had a new constitution in 1972 where mm-hmm. the their, um, they used the same language from before, but the people who adopted there didn't didn't have this, this anti-Catholic sure. sentiment. And so um, it, it gets complicated. Yes, <laughs> it does. It does. Well, you left us with a cliffhanger last week uh, that says, 
How early do you have to get to the Supreme Court to actually get a seat? And we're going to talk a little bit about what happens in a Supreme Court case at an oral argument. So maybe you can tell first start by telling us how early do you have to get in there? Well, I got up way too early, it turned out. <laughs> Did but, it? But, <laughs> Did you? Okay. Uh, fortunately, so I am not a, a, a lawyer on this case. I work mm-hmm. with people who, who were, though. There's yeah. there's four primary lawyers lawyers on the case. Two of them actually got to sit at the table, oh, uh, beside, and one exciting. argued the case to the, the justices, and two had, had a special ticket you can get. But there's only a few tickets. Okay. Um, and in fact, the, the whole Supreme Court building is not as big as you might think. So there mm-hmm. there are yes. only a limited number of seats. And unfortunately, even though it's 2020 and uh, mm-hmm. we have the internet and we have all kinds of ways where maybe you could allocate seats more rationally, uh, to get a seat there, it's just the old-fashioned way of you line up. Oh my. And there's a, line, there's a line for people <laughs> who belong to the Supreme Court bar. Uh, there's a special section for lawyers. So I am a member of the Supreme Court bar because uh, anyone who's a lawyer in this country and has been practicing for over three years can basically get got become it. a member got of that it. bar. Mm-hmm. And then there's a line for everyone else. Mm-hmm. So I got there quite early. I think I got there just before 5 a.m. Mm-hmm. And I got there oh that early gosh. because early. some very hot uh, button issue cases can, even for the lawyers, have a line so long you need to get there that early. Wow. It turned out not to be the case for this, but it was it was fine. I was there early, and a lot other lawyers came. We had a we had a great time in, in the line before we went in the building. the The general public, though, uh, there were people lining up um, the evening prior to right? make sure that they got really? in. There's a, there's Did only they a, camp out. Yes, mean? they camp out. <laughs> oh there's there's only like a, a concert, guaranteed. Right? 50 or so seats. It can be more than that. It all depends on what's going on that day. But I think I would rather stay out overnight to wait for a Supreme Court case than a concert. I'm not a concert goer, clearly. <laughs> I have to ask this question. You know, we see so many of our uh, congressional hearings that are broadcast by the mainstream, you know, cable channels, C-SPAN. Why aren't any cases from the Supreme Court? Why aren't those streamed maybe over the internet or on television? Well, that is a, a great question. Uh, that is a lot of controversy with that. I'm but sure the there justices is. <laughs> have been reticent to allow cameras in the courtroom. Other, lots of other courts, of course, do allow cameras sure. in the courtroom. But you can get the audio uh, of the argument. Uh, they release it by Friday of, of every week and sometimes the, for a big case the same day. Um, but if you... So you want to see the, an argument. And I do recommend, even though it sounds painful, maybe uh, going to an argument sometime. It's such a, an amazing experience to see the, the advocates and the, the justices talking to each other. It's a, in most cases, it's just one hour each side. It gets mm. half an hour. Really? Um, and to okay. see all that mm. is quite an experience. Uh, I recommend if you go to Washington, D.C., uh, maybe pick a day where they have a boring you know, tax case or bankruptcy or something like that. There won't be that long a line and see if you can go. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, you're listening to Education Nation on AM 1280, The Patriot, where we have Anthony Sanders, an attorney from the Institute of Justice on discussing a Montana case of uh, regarding Blaine amendments at the Supreme Court. And he was actually there to listen to oral arguments. Tell us what it's like to go to the Supreme Court and watch an argument. What yeah, is that like? It, it, it's uh, more intimate than you might think that the person arguing the case is very close to the justices who are arraigned in a kind of a, a half circle um, of seniority, all nine of them. Hmm. Each side gets half an hour to argue. In our case, uh, 20 of those minutes were for our lead counsel, uh, Dick Comer, who is our, uh, 
sorry, has argued school choice cases for over 20 years all, all over the country. Wow. And this was really the capstone uh, to his career. career. He's, he's, mm-hmm. he's just about to retire. Very um, then the other 10 minutes were actually taken by um, a, a representative of the Solicitor General's office uh, hmm. from the United States government because they weighed in on our, on our side in this oh, case, which is excellent. always good to have when, mm-hmm. you, when you have a case about the Constitution. And then the other side was the advocate for the Montana Department of Revenue. Um, and then at the very end, um, Mr. Comer, our, our lawyer, got a, a three minutes to, to go up and, and do a rebuttal. So mm-hmm. that's how the mm-hmm. argument generally works. And uh, you get a lot of rapid fire questions. Uh, most of the justices are, are very into you know, asking uh, some pointed questions. They've actually changed the rules this year. So the advocate gets two minutes where they can say something without being interrupted before the the questions start uh, that usually it used to be more like 15 seconds, seconds. <laughs> but uh, it's been um, it's it's quite a show to watch. I can only imagine so almost like a TV show, right? <laughs> so let's get into the nooks and crannies here. I mean, what happened at the oral argument in this case? Yeah, well, it is a very divided court, as we mm-hmm. expected. Sure. There one thing that we won't go into too much detail, but to give listeners a preview of of when the case comes out, probably in May or June of this year, is that some justices were concerned whether they could reach the constitutional issue here because what the Montana Supreme Court did was basically get rid of the entire program. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, there's an argument that there's no more discrimination going on because no one's getting any kind of scholarship. Kind of like what happened in Colorado. A little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the counter to that is, well, that only happened because of an incorrect reading of the First Amendment. Sure. And if they had read that correctly, yes. then the program would be going forward. And so that's what the Supreme Court was reviewing. So about half of the questions, in fact, to our advocate were about these procedural issues, standing, mm-hmm. mootness, we, we call them, that you have to get mm-hmm. through before you can get to the core constitutional issue as to whether this violates the First Amendment. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. How do you do that in 30 minutes? You, 20, really. You, you have 20. a lot of preparation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And then how much time for questions, did you say? Well, it, it's all, it's other than the first two minutes, yeah, it's, all it's all just questions. questions. Okay. And, yeah. and when you get to the Supreme Court, um, you you know that it's going to be, mostly questions. Mm-hmm. So you you maybe have maybe. some remarks you want to get in, but you need to work it in while answering the, the questions. justices' questions, yeah. which can be in all kinds of uh, different mm-hmm. different topics. To know your topic extremely well and all of your... And getting yeah. right to the point. Yeah, get right to the yes. point. Yep. We talked a little bit last week um, about how uh, it was believed that maybe the state of Montana had violated the 14th Amendment uh, in terms of its equal protection of the laws. Let's Let's talk a little bit about that again today, maybe recap that a little bit. Do the plaintiffs have a legitimate argument when they argue that the state of Montana uh, committed this violation? Yes. So we we have three arguments that the state of Montana's Blaine Amendment, as it's been interpreted by their Supreme Court, violates the United States Constitution. One, uh, we've talked a little bit about Mm -hmm. the free exercise Mm -hmm. clause, that you can't have a you can't distinguish between re, re, religious groups and non-religious groups if you have generally available some benefit Funds. government mm-hmm. program mm-hmm. you also can't do it under the the equal protection clause we argue for similar similar reasons and the equal protection clause is part of the 14th amendment that was uh, adopted in the wake of the civil war to make sure that 
the protections of the U.S. Constitution applied to the states, not just to the federal government. And that's a that's a, a clause we use in a lot of our cases about uh, state and local violations of, of individual liberties. Hmm. Hmm. So that's another argument we have. And then we have this establishment clause argument, which goes back to the, the anti-Catholic mm-hmm. roots of the Blaine Amendments. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you think the Supreme Court is likely to rule? And what will be the impact beyond Montana? Well, there's no guarantees. Uh, it, uh, it's one of these cases that, that I think is going to be very close, probably a five to four vote. Okay. Um, we were encouraged by some of the questioning. It's, this mm-hmm. is like reading tea leaves right. Right? When, you're, <laughs> when you, when you see an argument, but right. we were encouraged. We think that there, there's, uh, five justices who are fairly, uh, um, troubled, by what the Montana Supreme Court did. Mm-hmm. What could change things is if this procedural barriers I talked about earlier could mean that they don't want to reach the issue and we could have some kind of odd split uh, mm-hmm. opinion. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes justices who you don't think are going to rule in your favor do, but they might have it for their own quirky reasons. Um, Justice Breyer is very good at this, actually, mm-hmm. um, when mm-hmm. it comes to religion and um, and in other cases where he'll write his own concurrence, so perhaps on, on the side where you won't expect him, but, you know, for his own his own reasons. So we could hmm. see something like uh, that as well. But we are cautiously optimistic that at the end of the day, the court will rule that you cannot have a um, a program like this that violates uh, that it violates the First Amendment to only provide aid to secular schools and not to religious schools, and then that that will enable other states to adopt their own school choice programs that will be generally applicable to all Mm -hmm. private schools. Which would be absolutely phenomenal. Yes, it would. And I'm sure that there are many... I don't. I don't know how how that might work when there are people who are opposed to that. You know, they can't. Can they write letters to? Can other attorneys for the other side write letters to the Supreme Court? Will they read those? Or well, that's a great question. <laughs> so, uh, what what normal people would call letter, letters, we call amicus briefs. Okay, friend of the court briefs. Okay. And there were over forty friend of the court briefs filed in this case, wow. which is a very high number. Okay. Um, these these high profile cases do get a, a fair amount of amicus briefs, but that that was pretty high. Uh, yeah. over thirty were on our side, and then oh, there were about uh, over a dozen on on the other side as well. Now, the justices do not sit down and read all forty I, of those. I would briefs. imagine not. Yeah. I, I, I even they are not capable of that amount of reading. I, sure. I believe, but their law clerks often do, or mm-hmm. at least uh, take a summary of, of many of those briefs. And so they can influence what the justices do. I mean, sure. we, we welcome these over 30 briefs in, yes. in our side, but, you know, mm-hmm. we try and encourage people, well, could you team up with this other person and say it? Because otherwise you're just saying the same, same thing, thing over, over again. Over. Yeah. Um, but it's still, it's good to have yeah. that kind of support. Yeah. So if for some reason the Supreme Court does not rule in favor of the plaintiffs here, how, how can true change really ultimately happen in this country? Well, if that if the they rule that this does not violate the the federal constitution, uh, then it would be up to the people of Montana to amend their constitution to allow for this type of program, which mm-hmm. is goes back mo- to the states. Most states, mm-hmm. it's a lot easier mm-hmm. to do that than to amend. Of course, the U.S. Constitution is about the hardest thing in the world sure. to to change. Um, 
Or it could be that, uh, you know, a, a future Montana Supreme Court could interpret it differently and say, mm-hmm. no, this doesn't apply to a school choice program. You can have parental choice where the parent decides where the money goes. That does not that is not um, a uh, a worry when it comes to trying to have a barrier between state and uh, and religion and the entanglement that mm-hmm. that involves. So um, there will be other routes for for change, but we're hopeful that this will enable new school choice programs to yes. be enacted and to have greater choice for parents. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we've got about three and a half minutes here. We'll we'll finish up with this here. But what is the most important message, do you think, that the U.S. Supreme Court, through a, an affirmative vote here for school choice, that they could send to America, Americans nationwide? I think it's that our Constitution matters mm-hmm. uh, and that when judges engage with the Constitution – that constitution should mean something. One interesting thing about this case is that unlike most constitutional lawsuits, you kind of have the government on either side, right? You have the Montana legislature, which enacted this program. On the other side, though, you have the Department of Revenue, which pushed back against the program. And then you have the Montana Supreme Court, which was effectively ruled uh, in a way the Department of Revenue wanted. Um, So often when you have a constitutional lawsuit, what we come up against in our work is this idea of judicial restraint and that we need to defer to what the legislature thinks is constitutional or not. The problem with that is the Constitution is supposed to protect us from the legislature. That's why we have our state constitutions and our federal constitution. Uh, And so what judges need to do instead is not to look to what the legislature thinks the Constitution means, but to interpret the Constitution for themselves and and not to make up the law as they see fit, but to let the Constitution decide whether or not um, a law can can go forward. Mm -hmm. And so in this case, the the justices should look to the Constitution as their guide. They should not... um, you know, defer to some policy that someone else has set if it does violate the Constitution. And the, the interesting thing, again, is that the government's on either side. So if a judge is used to just, you know, letting the government get whatever they want, they can't do that here. <laughs> and they're and, forced to make a And choice. they're forced, mm-hmm. yeah, to, to make a more uh, objective decision mm-hmm. about, well, what does the Constitution mean? Mm-hmm. Which is good. Let me just ask this That's real quick. Right. I mean, could a case like this, I mean, without getting too too far in the weeds, could this then snowball into another argument, say, at the court level? For example, we talked about how uh, the monies that were being privately donated to these scholarship funds, this $150, instead wouldn't go towards, say, like a state income tax, but instead would go to a scholarship fund. Is that correct? That's that's how this program that works. Program. Because, because what I'm wondering is, is if this, for some reason, didn't work out at the Supreme Court level, if then the next case that could be brought up is to say, well, what's the constitutionality of a state income tax? Because from what I understand, that came about around the same time that the Federal Reserve was introduced in 1913. And I can just see where that could get very, you know, nitpicky and very detailed. And But yet, you know, the fight will always continue. Yeah, I won't, I won't comment, comment on that. Um, but uh, uh, this can cut, you know, whether or, or, or not... A uh, a law violates the federal constitution sure. should be very different than whether or not it violates 
a state constitution. States have all kinds of protections in their constitution that don't violate the federal constitution like Blaine Amendments, but can provide more liberties to to the people. And those need to be taken seriously Mm -hmm. as well. Absolutely. Well, Anthony, this has been a very interesting couple of weeks. Thank you so much for joining us in studio. And uh, we wish you the best. And we'll be, I, I, you know, everybody I think knows that I am a headmaster of a private Christian school. So I am very much in favor of what you're doing here. And we wish you the best and hope that you'll get a ruling in your favor. And thank you. And, and as uh, listeners uh, don't know, my children go to your school. Yes. I'm very much in, in favor of that, too. And they are very bright kids. We're very happy to have them. And on that note, we have an open house coming up on the 20th of February at 9 a.m. at Liberty Classical Academy in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. You can check out our website, but the time is from 9 until 1030 in the morning. Uh, again, February 20th. So I hope that you can all come and join us if you're looking for a great private Christian school for your kids and uh, join Anthony's students there at, at Liberty Classical Academy. So thank you so much for joining us again, Anthony. And thank you again, Mark, for all of your excellent work and uh, love co-hosting with you. You as well. Thank you. All right. Have a good night. Thank you both.